right, good morning. Welcome to the Springs. Did y'all enjoy the praise and broship? Come on. I thought about that all by myself. Uh, Our lovely ladies are being refreshed in Wimberley, Texas at a women's retreat. And if you follow us on Instagram, it looks like they're having uh, the best time. So they'll be wrapping up this morning. So uh, if any ladies are listening to this podcast, we miss you, okay? Uh, So this morning, we find ourselves in week three of our series called Resident Aliens. And this series is coming out of Romans chapter 13. And we're unpacking this idea that, that Christians, although we are residents of this world, we're called to live in, in such a different way, in, in a manner that is truly out of this world. And so today we're going to close out this series as we look at the last paragraph in chapter 13. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. We are in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. It says this, verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here's what I want to do with this passage. I want to spend some time getting a bird's eye view of this text. Uh, And what I mean by this is I want to gather some context and see what's happening in this last paragraph in chapter 13. And then after we've kind of gathered some insight, I want to zoom in uh, and look at each verse individually and see what it means for our lives today. So let's pray before we get started. Father, we we come to you in Jesus' name, and we're so thankful uh, that we get to gather here and experience you in worship and in the word and in community. Uh, I pray as we look into this text and unpack it, Father, that you would open up our eyes and our ears to see you. Lord, all the distractions that maybe we brought into this place, I pray that they would be removed and that you would give us 20-20 vision to see you in this text, in this word, and become all that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this might be an obvious, obvious observation, but it'll help me explain where we're going. So the things that we do in our lives are, are not purposeless, uh, and, and they're not necessarily random, but, but they're being done from some sort of motive or, or motivation. Uh, for example, your job may be tough, but you're motivated to keep showing up because you have bills to pay. Okay, rent, mortgage, car bill isn't going to pay itself. You have a, a family to provide for, so you're, you're motivated to keep showing up and working hard. Uh, students, you may be motivated to study hard and, and work hard because you want to graduate, or, or you failed a test or two, or, or maybe even a whole class, and, and you're motivated to do well because you have to pass your classes in order to graduate and move on with your life. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, in some sense, motives inform the way that we live. And I realize that motives isn't the most popular word because it's often used negatively. Like, like what are your motives for marrying my daughter? I don't know. Money and the credit score? Uh, like, obviously, that's what I meant. No. 
And it kind of has like this negative connotation. Like, what are your motives for pursuing this or, or doing that? And yet what the scriptures reveal is that with following God, motives matter. And there are good motives and there's bad motives. So, so a bad motive for walking with God would, would be this idea that I'm walking with God for, for the happiness. Like, like if, if I walk with God, I'll be happy and, and all my problems will go away. Yet this isn't what the scripture teaches. And in fact, it won't be long before you're met with disappointment because a walk with God is not free of suffering, trials, and tribulations. Some would say, oh, I'm walking with God for the blessings, whatever that means. Blessing sounds cool, that's what I want. And although God desires to bless us, if you're only in it to receive and get from God, you'll come up thoroughly disappointed because God doesn't work for you that way. Some would say, oh, I'm walking with God so, so my friends and my family can get off my back. If that's your motive for walking with God, you are not walking with God. At best, you're just showing up and missing out on a vibrant relationship with Jesus. And so these are bad motives because they have the wrong heart. And so we started trekking through, through Romans last summer, and we've made our way to the end of chapter 13. And as we've been going through this book, the author Paul has revealed a number of good reasons, good motives for living the Christian life, motives for walking with God. Here are five that have come up that I'm going to briefly run through. One motive Paul gives for living the Christian life is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 10 through 11. And the motive here is that we have a new nature. Paul says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is saying, we have a new nature. When we were spiritually dead, we were not living for God. But now God has conquered sin and I can experience a new life. I can live a new life because I have a new nature. The second motive Paul gives is found in Romans chapter 6 verse 16. This motive here revolves around a new freedom, the motive of new freedom. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So Paul, in one sense, is saying, hey, you have to pick a side. You're you're either serving sin, which leads to death, and destruction, or you're serving Jesus, and this leads to a higher quality of life. You can't do both at the same time. And he's saying you have this new freedom to live for Jesus. And then the third motive that comes up is is found uh, in chapter 6 as well. And this motive has to do with reflecting and remembering. He says in verse 21 through 22, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's eternal life. So Paul, what he's saying is, hey, reflect and remember. When that desire comes up to to follow Jesus, when it seems it's lacking, when it seems like living this life for God isn't worth it, just take a moment to look back. How did that work out for you? 
and, and reflect and see how good God has been to you and what he has brought you out of. Remember how it was before Jesus came into your life and how he transformed your life. And the fourth motive that comes up in Romans is relationship. This one's simple. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. We press on to follow Jesus. We press on to be uh, in relationship with him because we, we belong to him. Because of his commitment to me and my commitment to him, I press on to remain faithful. And the scripture frequently uses the language of of marriage to describe our union with Christ. Because I have a relationship with God, the same way that I have a a relationship with my wife. I'm her husband. I I get to do this. I get to be married to her. My marriage isn't just rules. And, And if your walk with God is all rules, then it's not a walk with God. Lastly, and most importantly, the ultimate motivation is love. We read this last week, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law, motivated to walk with God because he loves me and I've experienced his love and I love him back. So so where am I going with this? There, There are many other motives that Paul gives in Romans to, to follow Jesus and walk with him. But now there is a new motive to consider, a motive that is totally different than anything else Paul has ever written about. And as we close out this chapter, this last paragraph, we're introduced to one last motive, and it's this. Time is running out. Time is running out. Paul says the hour has come. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand and Jesus is coming back. I mean, do this with me. Think back over this past week. How much of what you did was motivated by a conscious awareness that Jesus is coming back? I see a few smiles and frowns. (laughs) If I'm being honest, not much at all. I'm so easily distracted with, with daily tasks and things going on or coming up that I don't spend any time thinking that, that Jesus is coming back. And yet, my life on this earth is personally running out. Like, I'm running out of days. My, my days are numbered. And, and globally, each day that passes brings us one day closer to Jesus' return. And this is the motive that Paul is introducing, time. And time is one of those things that that we are virtually unaware of, yet aware of at the same time. We're either always running late because we lost track of time, and you walk in somewhere between the the second worship song and the prayer moment. I know who you are. Just just kidding, I don't. Uh, Seems like just time is, is slipping. It feels like you don't really realize how much time has passed by until... Netflix asks you that rude question, are you still watching? And you have, and you have this wake-up call, like, has it been three hours? Wow. What? And then on the flip side, when we are aware of time, we live 
much more intentional lives with our time. And in this passage of scripture, Paul is encouraging us to live in the present, live right now in light of the future return of Jesus. Paul is reminding us that that the approaching day of the Lord should cause us to walk away from sin and to walk in holiness. And, And this motive that Paul introduces for following Jesus is completely different from all the other ones. There's the the motive of new nature. I'm a new person, freedom, uh, relationship, and love. The reason why this one is so different is because it's an eschatological motive. Okay, now this is is a fancy word, but but I'm going to define it and break it down. It's going to help us understand what's going on here. Eschatology is the study of what the Bible says is going to happen in the end times. Eschatos is Greek. It means last. Logi means study of. So the study of the end times, the study of the last things. And this subject centers around the coming of the Lord Jesus and the events surrounding his appearance. Now, now this is just the definition. This is, this is the tip of the iceberg. Most of this subject is, is above my pay grade, but, but here's why this matters. Like I mentioned earlier, this is the first time Paul introduces an eschatological motive for following Jesus. And one of the reasons why this is an unpopular motive is because well-meaning and not so well-meaning people have dedicated their lives to predicting when Jesus is coming back. And then using fear and shame to motivate people to get right with God. Now, I'm from Dallas, south of Dallas, and so when I was a student at Texas State, I would drive down up I-35 to go visit my family, and, and somewhere past, uh, I believe, Temple and, MB, and before Waco, there was this billboard. And it said something like, Jesus is coming back March 31st, 2015, a very specific date. I remember thinking to myself, before I was following Jesus, like, okay, it's summer of 2011, I still got time, okay? And then the day comes, and nothing happens. And people begin to lose trust. And that fear and shame isn't a very good motivator for sustaining a relationship. It doesn't work. And Jesus makes it very clear in his life and ministry and in his teachings that only he knows when he is coming back. And then the question arises, well, how do we know he is coming back? Pretty simple, because he said he would. And when he arrived the first time in his life and in his ministry, he ushers in the kingdom of God, not only showing us a better way to live, but he rescues us from the problem that introduced the brokenness and destruction in our lives, sin. And and when he left, this is what he said. He said, I'm going to come back. But when I do, it's gonna be completely different. Heaven is literally going to invade earth. My glory is going to wipe away all sin and evil. And you're going to live in a new body, in a new world with me forever. And it's going to be amazing. And when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And he makes it happen. And so how should we live knowing that Jesus is coming back? This passage tells us to do three things. Wake up cast off, and put on. Wake up, cast off, and put on. First point, wake up. 
Let's look at verse 11 together. It says this. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So let's look at this word salvation. It says salvation is nearer. Now, this is a bit confusing because what does this mean? Like, I, I thought salvation already happened at the cross. Isn't it like that moment where I place my faith in Jesus and, and then I'm saved? He, he rescues me from myself. Why is Paul saying salvation is near? Although that is true, salvation is a comprehensive term. Here's what I mean. This word speaks to three things. It speaks to my past. It speaks to my present. And it speaks to my future. So salvation past refers to our justification. Now, now what is justification? Justification is a legal term that, that means that when Jesus died in my place for my sins, he declared me to be righteous or right before God. In my sin, when I stand before God, I'm, I'm unrighteous. I'm unholy. Jesus dies in my place for that very thing so that I can stand before him the way Jesus stands before God, holy, righteous, and perfect. So, so justification refers to a past event. It's something that happens in a moment, like when uh, a judge slams that gavel and says, you're free. In a moment, it's declared. Now, salvation present, when it speaks to our present, this is referring to sanctification. This is a, a word that the Bible that uses to describe the process by which God makes me holy. The process by which God makes me what he has already declared me to be. He has declared me to be righteous. He's declared me to be holy. That's the way he views me. But the reality is that I still live in a very broken, fractured world. And I am not fully righteous and fully holy. And so sanctification is this process by which, uh, through the union and help of the Holy Spirit, God is putting to death that sin nature in me and making me more like Christ. Yet it's a very partial process. And I won't be fully holy, fully righteous, until Jesus comes back. And this is what the future is, glorification, Glorification. So, so the short answer is that glorification is God's final removal of sin from the life of the saints. This speaks to Jesus coming back. And when he comes back, instead of being mortals, burdened with a sin nature, we will be changed into holy immortals with direct and unhindered access to God's presence. And we will enjoy holy communion with him throughout eternity. And so this verse speaks directly to our future and final salvation, glorification, sin being removed once and for all, the Lord wiping away all evil and restoring this universe so we can live in perfect, unhindered access with him. This is a lot, okay? So, so please stay with me. This, there's a tension here. This is the tension where we find ourselves right in the middle of, Okay? He's come in the past, we get that. I'm in the present right now, and we're waiting for him in the future. 
And every follower of Jesus is experiencing this tension between living in light of what Jesus has done for us and experiencing what awaits us when he comes back. This is where we currently find ourselves right in the middle in between Jesus already dying for us and waiting for him to come back. And what Paul is saying is wake up because Jesus is going to show up. And if we're expecting his arrival, we should be ready to receive him. Like, like if, you're, if you're expecting to get married, when, when the girl receives that ring from the nervous guy, that ring symbolizes a promise that, that they will marry. The, the couple already has the promise of marriage. The day is coming. It's marked on the calendar. The countdown has begun, but they still wait for their wedding, which is not yet. And while they're expecting this moment, they are at the same time getting ready for it. Maybe you're, you're expecting to graduate. So what do you do? You apply for graduation, but you don't just wait for this day. You're doing stuff in between, trying to pass your classes, because if you don't pass your classes, you're not going to graduate. Maybe you schedule a photo shoot. You buy your cap and gown. You, you get your outfit ready. Why? Because you know the day is coming. It's on the calendar. It's not here yet, but you are doing everything you can do to prepare for the arrival of that day. Here's a more personal story. Morgan and I are expecting our first baby. Super pumped. That's my wife right there. I love her. Uh, I have every reason to believe, according to all the wives' tales, that we're expecting a boy. Okay? And, uh, and I believe science will confirm this in about eight weeks when we find out the gender. Now, now don't read into this. Baby girls are amazing. I'm just going off the wives' tales that, that I heard from my mother and grandmother-in-law. If you want more information, find me after. Okay? But here's the idea. The baby is already in her, but it is not here. Her body is changing. Her desires are changing. Her cravings are changing. And I don't think she's making it up, okay? I don't think this is some fancy ruse to only eat hot Cheetos all day, okay? We could have done that before, babe. The same. But, but something is happening. Something is being formed inside of her, and we're expecting this person to arrive in August. He or she is coming. And, and to connect this back to this passage, Jesus is coming back. We are waiting his arrival, awaiting his arrival. And he's saying, don't passively wait for his arrival. This is why he says, wake from your sleep. And why does he use this word sleep? Because what are you doing when you're sleeping? Absolutely nothing. You are mindless. You're numb. You are inactive. Have you ever noticed that when you're sleeping, nothing else matters? Probably not because you're sleeping. You don't know what's happening. And Paul is urging us, do not be caught spiritually sleeping. Do not passively wait for the arrival of Jesus. Rather, actively wait for his coming. We know our child is coming in August. And we are not passively waiting. 
So what are we doing? We're actively waiting. We're doing things while we await the arrival of this baby. We are adjusting our lives to the best of our ability and trying to get our lives in order. Like our tiny apartment isn't going to work, so let's find a bigger space. We're, we're adjusting our lives, looking at the calendar, seeing what needs to get done, showing up to doctor's appointments, doing what the doctor says. We're, we're not just lounging around saying, all right, we got six months. Let's do nothing. The baby will figure it out. This is my life and I'm going to do what I want. This is obviously wrong. And yet this is the way many of us think about Jesus. So what does actively waiting look like? What do we do while we wait for Jesus to come back? This brings us to verse 12 and 13. Our second point, cast off. Cast off. Paul says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The night is far gone. So let us cast off the works of darkness. Night and darkness are are used here in a spiritual sense to describe sin and rebellion against God. I love this quote that I heard. Rebellion against God is not just living life like you hate God. It is living life like there is no God. Rebellion against God is not just living your life like you hate God, but living your life like there is no God. Like if your kids walk around the house and act like their parents don't exist, this is called rebellion. The nighttime, the darkness is painting a picture of a godless life. Living a life that is absent of life, absent of God. So, so Paul is saying, don't just wake up, cast off. So so you wake up spiritually. The light of God comes into our lives and illuminates all the darkness in our life that needs to go. And Paul is addressing very specific things to to cast off, to remove, to let go. This word is the same word that means put away, put off, lay aside. It's it's found all over the New Testament. Paul's saying, saying, cast off the works of darkness. And he gives us a, a small list. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual morality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. In other places of scripture, he gets even more specific of what we should cast off. Colossians 3, 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion. This means don't be led by your flesh. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 6. He says in verse seven, in these, you you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Paul is saying, don't play with this. Don't try to control sin. He uses very violent language. Kill it, murder it, cremate it, bury it, lock it away, do it. Over and over again. It is not something to be tamed. It is not something to be controlled. It is not your friend. The very nature of sin is to devour you, break you, 
and keep you in bondage to keep you from God. Sin is not like this cute baby lion that you can tame. I love these uh, Animal Planet shows. Here's a baby lion. I'm going to tame it and I'm going to train it and I'm going to put my head in it and then boom, when animals attack, everything goes wrong. Sin Sin is not your friend. Sin cannot be tamed. But let me clarify something because this is something that that comes up a lot that I hear. God is not trying to hold anything back from you. Specifically with this text, God, God is not holding you back from having sex. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the boundaries that God has given us in marriage. And these boundaries are in place to, to hold you back and to restrict you. They're there to protect you. I love the way Pastor Peter teaches this. It, it, it's like fire in a fireplace. When, when a fire is contained, it serves a good purpose. But when the fire gets out, it's not long before that fire burns you, burns others, and destroys the home. The boundaries are liberating. They're not restrictive. And it breaks my heart to see how much pain a person must experience from their own willful participation in sin before they realize this truth. That God isn't holding anything back. That he's setting boundaries in my life, not to restrict me, but for me to experience the highest quality of life. Because he designed me, he created me, he orders my life and he knows how I should live and what is best for me. I'm, I'm so thankful that the Lord rescued me from this idea that, that I know how I should live my life. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I'm 18. I have everything figured out. And, and, and the Lord redeemed my broken experiences to show me, hey, you're not as smart and wise as you think you are. In fact, there's a reason why I call you a sheep because you need a shepherd. You need somebody to direct you and show you how to live because I do not know how to because I didn't create myself. I'm created by God and for God. And so if we end here, this is, this is terrible news because this is where most people end. They hear stop doing this and so they stop. I'm going I'm to stop this practice. I'm going to stop this sin. I'm going to quit this addiction. Um, stop doing this, stop doing that. And, and you momentarily do it, but, but there's no lasting change. Because this is the reality. You can stop sin, but it seems like the more you stop and the longer you stop, the stronger the desire becomes until you finally fall into the same thing again. This is why Proverbs twenty six eleven says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's me. And, and so how do we cast off? Bible says we repent, acknowledge your sin, be specific. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you turn to Jesus. Here's the reality. The scripture never leaves you to yourself to stop doing something. Never. It is always followed by falling more in love with someone. And that person is Jesus. Paul says, don't just cast off. Don't just stop doing stuff. Put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall more in love with him. Draw near to him. Stay close to him. 
If all you do is, is put to death something in you without replacing something greater, it's not long before something else comes and occupies that space in your heart. Paul says, don't just put to death. Plant something better in its place. Fill it with God's presence and love and watch how transformation begins to look so different. And Paul is, is reminding us that it is not enough to wake up. We, we, we must not only wake up, we must also cast off and get dressed. We not only cast off or take off, we must put on. And this brings us to our third point, put on. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So so what are we putting on? Two things. Put on the armor of light as mentioned in the previous verse and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about armor of light for a second. Why armor of light? What we are called to put on describes the activity that awaits us. What we are called to put on describes the activity that awaits us. Like, like if I see you putting on football gear, I'm just going to assume that you're not going to some painting class. You're going to play football. Like if you're wearing a wedding dress and a tuxedo, I'm going to rightfully assume that, that you're about to get married or, or you just got married. Okay, you're not one of those weird people that, that wears it everywhere, every day. Although I would like to because it, it feels awesome. The tuxedo, obviously, okay? No, no Dennis Rodman wedding dress. And so we're called to wear armor because we are in a battle. Living the Christian life is not a slumber, it's a battle. And so, so what kind of armor? He gets descriptive, an armor of light. Notice that he doesn't say an armor of darkness. We wage war against sin in the Christian life not using the power of darkness, but the power of light. And this light is Jesus. John 1, 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, will never overcome it. We wage war against darkness in our life by, by putting on the armor of light and letting the light of Christ drive out the darkness in our lives. The imagery of armor is amazing because when you think about it, it goes over you. You put it on. And in some sense, it goes before you. And the imagery is that the Lord covers us and the Lord goes before us and the battle and the victory belong to him. We put on the armor of light, and and in verse 14, it gets even more specific. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus. So so the idea here is like putting on clothes. Like when I I got up this morning, contrary to popular belief, I I put my own clothes on. Okay? And, And I put my clothes on with the intention that they would go everywhere with me. That they would be a part of me all day. That is the purpose of clothes. I don't plan to to go eat lunch at Chewy's and then take them off, okay? That's not what's happening here. And and this is the type of relationship that we are to have with Jesus when we put him on. He is 
a part of me. Like, like my sweater, he will go everywhere with, everywhere with me today. He will live through me. So, so what does this look like? I believe it looks like having a daily awareness that Jesus is with me. Setting my mind on Jesus, meditating on his word, thinking about him, reminding my heart and my life that, that Jesus is with me because he is. I also believe this, this looks like closeness. Stay close to Jesus. Like, like putting on clothes, it's so close to me. And that is the type of intimacy that I am supposed to have with Jesus. Close to his presence. Inviting his presence into every part of my life and everything I do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And and as we get ready to transition into communion, I want to close with with a few questions as we come to the table. Are you passively expecting or actively expecting Jesus' return? Are you just kind of going through the motions, just showing up to work, showing up to class, just going through day by day, not having an awareness of Jesus is coming back, therefore I should, I, I should be motivated to live for him and be his light, not to be shamed and feared into relationship, but, but live in light of his return. Are, are you passively expecting or actively expecting? To, to, me, to be more clear, are, are you sleeping? Are you spiritually asleep? Are you unaware, careless? In this place of, 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 of numbness, nothing matters. It's not even on my radar. Or are you awake and living in light of his return? Second question is, is what do you need to cast off as you come to the table? What sin, what, what false belief, what pride or doubt do you need to lay down so that Jesus can come in that place and you can experience all that he has for you. Because the reality of this is that if if we're not putting on Jesus, we're putting something else on. Another identity that we think will complete us. Another relationship that we think will fulfill us. Another activity that we think will satisfy us. Another burden that we're never meant to carry. And Jesus invites us to cast off, to to lay everything down in exchange for intimacy and relationship with him. And so how how do you grow in this? It, It doesn't come from human effort, but by coming to the source, the source of love, God. Not by doing better, but by coming to Jesus and asking him to wake you up, to help you cast off. Holy Spirit, help me put on and help me become more like you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed.